Alright, I am pretty sure that this time the periscope is going to work. Thank you for bearing through a few technical difficulties with me here. Uh, Zach Gifford here for Birds on the Black, uh, here hosting the fourth or fifth, I think fifth episode of Nerds on the Black. I'll be joined, um, hopefully, if we resolve the technical issues, by Jason Hill of Viva Alberto's. We will see if I figured it out by now or not. Um, if not, we'll probably just have to go um, go on. I think we figured it out, maybe, but we'll see. Um, again, talking MLB's latest proposal that they're going to play. Uh, Graham, hey, I'm late. Yes, I am late. I am becoming uh, a master of showing up late, and the later and later I get, um, it, it seems like every week I miss by more and more minutes. Uh, maybe that's an issue for my preparation this time it's actually technical difficulties um so jason will be joining me i think i just accidentally blocked or denied his call in um jason will be joining me jason's a great writer at viva alberto's he started there i think within the last year um it's been a tough time to join uh the sports blogging uh i don't want to call it an industry but audience so we uh Obviously, with no baseball, there's a little bit, a little bit less going on. But it sounds like Jason, are you on? Can you hear me? I think I'm on, man. All right, we finally, after, at long last, were able to get Jason on. Uh, hopefully, well, well worth it. Well worth it. Yeah, well worth it. Uh, <laughs> this time, so normally I have random technical issues that uh, seem that usually I can figure out uh, before I go live. I think the worst one was the Taylor Swift episode where. I think Keely, I had to work for probably like 30 minutes to figure out why she was echoing. And it was, I think, because there were like three different mics picking her up. Um, I thought I got better at it since then. Apparently not. Because um, this time it was just the normal app and I couldn't figure it out there. So, um, but yeah, so hopefully this, hopefully we sound all right. Again, this is a little bit, a little bit out of left field. But uh, so I think today, you know, last night, I don't know. Maybe you're, I don't know if you're a night owl or a morning guy, but I was awake at 12.30 or so when Jeff Passan dropped a bombshell that the MLB was considering playing a shortened season with some of the modifications that we've seen before, um, including seven-inning seven inning double headers, expanded rosters, things like that, kind of standard stuff for maybe for uh, – something you might see in like college baseball, I think. Um, but Jeff Passan last night dropped a bombshell that they were taking those considerations and going to try to play a, I think, 162-game season by bringing every single player on every single team to Arizona where they could play among several different spring training facilities or um, Chase, obviously Chase Field with the Diamondbacks and try to get in as many games as they can in the next four and a half months. Obviously, I, I'm not entirely sure where you're from. We could talk about kind of the impacts you're, you're seeing near your hometown, but with the coronavirus spreading, there's, I think, we're up to almost every state having some sort of social restrictions. We have shortages of testing in many states. Um, I think this has been dubbed peak week, so nationally, uh, this is the, the week we expect the coronavirus cases or deaths to be the highest and then obviously kind of depending on geography tailing off since 
tailing off after that. Um, but MLB comes out with a an aggressive plan to get sports back on the radar, to get baseball back on the radar as early as May. Um, Jason, I don't know. I, I think I have some mixed feelings about it. Um, but if you, I, what's your take on kind of your read of the the proposal that was sent out last night? Well, I guess I, I question what they mean by May. May is a long month. There's like 30 days in it, uh, 31 perhaps. I'm not exactly sure. But if you're talking early May, that would mean spring training starting in the next few weeks, which which seems unthinkable to me. Yeah. But if they're talking about spring training coming back in mid-May or even late May, if that's what they mean, then – uh, you know, at that point, maybe it's it's possible. I don't want to say believable, possible, likely no. Um, but as you say, you know, if this is the peak time right now, I don't think anyone at this point understands what what America is going to be like uh, basically six weeks from now at, at the yeah. part of May, Memorial Day. You know, we just don't know. Yeah, and I think there's been some. Uh concern maybe about how quickly uh, projections have been put out kind of estimating how long the the impact is going to last projecting out you know what the total impact is going to be I mean I think a couple of weeks ago we were seeing that uh, you know up to like two million people were in the U.S. at least we're probably gonna we're gonna I, I think the fatality estimate was two million and then once we kind of went down to uh, once we kind of locked in the social distancing, you saw the, the national government starting to estimate closer to 200,000. And then I think the most recent estimate I've seen has gotten it down to like 90,000. There's a lot of people working with very limited information. They're trying to do the best things they can with that information. But like you said, we don't know what the world is really going to look like in May. I think we can guess based on how other viruses have reacted. Um, <laughs> Joe says, quit touching my face. Uh, Joe, if I already have... <laughs> Uh, if face touching is going to be what gets me Corona, I probably got it three days ago, um, at least probably longer. It, but yes, don't touch your face if you can avoid it, especially after you've been in public. Luckily, I've been quarantined for the last three weeks. So uh, anything that's on my hands when I touch my face is already probably in my body. Um, but I think the con- I think the main concern and, and maybe the main uncertainty with this proposal is just that we're Baseball is trying to, I think, stay kind of in the public conscience while this sort of thing, while the virus is kind of playing out, you don't have sports um, actively going. But at the same time, like, is it socially responsible thinking about the players' families, thinking about international players, thinking about just like the general health concerns? even for like, you know, if the MLB goes back to play, do they have to? How often do they have to test these players? Does that take away anything from the general public? I don't. I, it it seems like there's a lot of hurdles to cross, and I think there's a little, there's a few lines where it's it, it's kind of questionable ethically. I don't know if you have thoughts there. Well, I, I kind of do, and I guess you know, I, I think one of the things that happens when a report comes out like this is that we we read it as as the whole story instead of as as a report. You know, Jeff Passan, he he obviously had leaked information. He had access to the conversation that plays between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. 
Um, but, but he even presented it as a conversation, one that they were focused on among several different options that they talked about. Yeah. So all of those details, we, we don't know what they are. I don't think MLB knows what they are. I don't think the Players Association knows what they are because they haven't, they haven't come up with them yet. But there, yeah, you're right. There are a ton of hurdles that are going to have to cross and, and some real risk to the players, to the families. And then I think, you know, you kind of alluded to this too. What kind of message does this send to the rest of the nation? You know, we're all socially distancing, uh, distancing, we're all isolating ourselves, but yet baseball is above that. Yeah, and I think one of the things I saw, I don't know if this was in the Pisan Report or in a, um, maybe in kind of a interpretation of that report that I saw afterwards, but there's a sentiment, I think, among the sport maybe, that the that by playing games they could be sort of like a beacon kind of a light at the end of the tunnel sort of thing like you know they'd be the only sport on they'd be televised all the time because there's nothing else going on right now you watch espn on i don't know a wednesday afternoon there's nothing but reruns of old college basketball games right now um so i'm sure that networks would pay to get people on i think you'd get some excitement but at the same time like there were questions when the NBA started to, you know, I think when Rudy, o- when Rudy Gobert um, kind of had his incident where he was feeling the microphones and he, a few days later, he tested positive for coronavirus. All of a sudden, everybody in the NBA was able to get tested. And I think at that time there was some question, maybe, I, I don't know if this was like a majority sentiment, but it was something that I definitely felt, um, you know, either on with the people I associate with, in, you know, in person or online, that why is the NBA able to get tests that turn around in a couple hours at will, and people who have jobs that you know that are living, obviously NBA players aren't living paycheck to paycheck, um, and a lot of a lot of Americans aren't either, but people that are more dependent on their family uh, to kind of get by on a week to week basis. Uh, people that have to figure out whether or not they should be going to to their jobs. Like, why can't there was a sentiment that like, why can't they get the same level of testing that these NBA players are getting? And I think that you run the risk, like like you said in baseball, the public perception being is baseball being played with no people in Arizona and players sitting in the stands instead of in dugouts more important than. Karen's been a a big meme online lately, so I'll use Karen. Then Karen and her family being able to get a test, you know, in a random town in the Midwest. Right, right. And that's why I think the timing of this is so important because right now, I mean, testing has become increasingly available, which wasn't the case when the NBA had their little – thing that happened yeah. you know was it two weeks ago it seems like a, a month ago now but it wasn't it, that long it seems it seems like a, a, a while ago now <laughs> right. but I think a lot of that is because we've been sitting inside doing nothing right so so the optics are bad on that now i think yeah because you know if you're going to test however many players a whole bunch of times uh over the course of several weeks before they can even gather and then continue to test them as they go along that's not so uh that's not so good but in may you know, maybe by then, hopefully by then, testing is widespread, it's easily available, it's, it's accessible for everyone, regardless of their community size or their, their celebrity status. 
And so maybe by then it's a little different story, but, but you know, that's yeah. not where we are today. Yeah, and it's, I think, the timing of the announcement, and maybe we are, I mean, maybe MLB has better insight than, you know, what we're getting on the public side. Maybe they are closer to that availability of testing than we really believe, but it seems like that that's at least uh, pretty far away. It, you know, it doesn't seem, you know, I think the current guidelines are still, you have to be showing symptoms, you have to have been exposed to people who are infected. Like, it's still not easy right. uh, for yeah. somebody who thinks they're sick to go in and get a test. Um, well, I do need to ask, uh, since we've been... Go ahead. I was going to say, certainly not healthy people. If you're not showing any yeah. symptoms, any signs, they're going to test you anyway just to make sure that you're okay. That seems a little, yeah. And I think that one of the big hurdles to this whole plan is going to be they're going to need to test everybody before they go back to Arizona, and then they're going to need to test everybody again once they're in Arizona. And I would think you need pretty frequent testing while you're there. But regardless of that, just like getting everybody back to a central location, you're going to need, I don't know, I guess it's 2,000 tests and we're running, I think, probably a couple 10,000 tests a day now, maybe more. I, I haven't, I'm not super updated on those numbers, but like you're going to need 2,000 tests, maybe more. I mean, if you count 40 main rosters, 1,200 tests, 2,400 tests to get everybody back into Arizona in a position where you feel comfortable that they will, that, that you can adequately say they don't have the virus. Cause you obviously, I don't know what they're going to do about an injured in injury list or an injured list. Um, like, are they going to have a Corona list that, you know, okay. Like he's got the coronavirus. He needs a week of quarantine before he's not showing symptoms and doesn't have a fever and can come on on the field play again. Um, I think it's just a strange, um, it's just a strange scenario. Um, right. I do want to ask, though, I think you have said before, you're from part of Missouri, right? I don't remember exactly where. Yeah, southeast Missouri, uh-huh. just I'll, south of... So you, uh, you guys got this stay-at-home order. Have you got, You've gotten a stay-at-home order by now, right? So I live in Illinois. We've been living in this scenario. Right, yeah. You guys have been way out of Missouri. Yeah, Missouri, uh, the governor um, was... was uh, the, the word that comes to mind is kicking it down right, to the state and local governments. Um, and so what he finally did on, oh, I think Friday, was he went ahead and just did a stay-at-home order for the month of April. I think it expires April 30th. I'd have to check on that, but okay. I'm pretty sure that's when it so is. I think, that, I think Missouri was one of the last 10 states or so to enact the stay-at-home order. So in I, Illinois when this happened, I was, uh, I think the official announcement that there was a stay-at-home order and that they were closing restaurants, um, restaurants specifically, but also, like, there were bar closures, there were retail closures. Um, Basically, everything that was not essential was on, I want to say, probably a week or so after St. Patrick's Day. Um, Yeah. Arkansas still doesn't have one. That's good to know, Daniel. I have a friend in Arkansas. Um, Hopefully, he can't transmit... Um, I think he just joined, actually. Hopefully he can't transmit the virus through the phone because I will be uh, – I've been playing Star Wars Battlefront. You'll appreciate that, uh, C70. Uh, I've been playing Star Wars Battlefront with him the last couple of weeks. Um, he's been – he's serious. He's been <laughs> – yes, yeah, so we will we will Battlefront soon. Um, but, yeah, so Arkansas is one of the states that doesn't have anything in place yet. Um, with Illinois, it was like within the first – Day. like literally I tried to go to get groceries 
the day, like a couple hours after the announcement was made. And there's a, a Mariano's and I live near Whole Foods. Uh, I have Amazon delivery options. I have a Jewel. I have Jewel delivery options. Everything was totally ransacked. Uh, I ended up finding enough frozen food at like a Walgreens to sort of get by for the next couple of weeks before the panic slowed down a little bit. And I was able to get like normal person groceries. But what was it like in around where you are as soon as that kind of just in the early couple of days after that was announced like did you notice like a big shift in the way people were viewing um just kind of their ability to access normal stuff i don't know um i think there's been some change i think um i'll be honest i've been a little disappointed with the response here in in our particular area um like today and i really <laughs> sort of breaking breaking the the rules here a little bit but um you know, my uh, my son is painting his room, and we were a gallon of paint short, so I went to Lowe's, and I bought a gallon of paint. You know, we needed it. It's, it's essential, no, but Lowe's is still open, so I went, and, and I was just shocked at the number of people that are out and about because in our little neck of the woods, there's several. I mean, we're not a small – we're a small town, but we're not, like, tiny. There's probably 100-something thousand people in our in our metro area. That's not that's – not, that's enough people that we that's need not, to be concerned. That's not small. No, right. And we think of ourselves as rural, and that's part of the problem. But, but yeah, people are just out doing their thing. There's a lot of restaurants that are, are closed, a lot of people that have been laid off, and, and other things that have been affected. But by and large, I see a lot of people just trying to go out their day, not caring. Yeah, and I think even in – so Chicago, I think, had a couple of good weeks where um, we uh, – there's not – it's not a state of emergency until the poppy seed hot dog buns are ransacked from Jewel. Uh so I had a time once where I thought I ate a poppy seed hot dog bun and it was just moldy. Um, C70 can confirm subbing, trouble getting things delivered that aren't in stores yet. I mean, so back to your point. So with people not taking it totally seriously, um, I think in Chicago there was a sense around St. Patrick's Day was when this really broke out um, in, in Illinois or in Chicago at least. And... Chicago has a rich St. Patrick's Day history. Uh, there were people out all over the place. Uh, I was lucky, I guess, that my group of friends at the time, we decided to do something that was a lot smaller. Um, but even then, it's like we still had – I was probably still in an apartment with 20, 25 people. And, you know, that was considered at the time, like, that was the responsible thing to do. And now you fast forward a month later, and it's like, I don't really want to be with anybody more than my roommates almost at a time. Um the weather is starting to turn in Chicago. They've uh, the mayor here has closed the beaches, parks, um, and basically a lot of just the public space that people were congregating at. I think there was an issue maybe on the lakefront of now that everybody's cooped up, everybody's going to go out and run at the same time or go hang out at the same time, and people weren't getting the space that they needed to kind of take this seriously. Um, it seemed like after the closure of the beaches and and the parks that people sort of for about a week or two in Chicago, at least, took the restrictions very seriously. You'd go out, you'd only see people with face masks on. Um, I'm actually getting my first face mask in the mail probably tomorrow, uh, thanks to my parents. Um, yeah. But then today we, it was 70 degrees and you go outside and it's like there's people biking right next to each other. There's people jogging, you know, on the sidewalks that you know, you're not getting the distance between these people. Um, that we were getting even just a week ago. Uh, I think there is some concern. Like I, 
in order to get back to MLB's proposal and getting baseball back in May, people are going to have to take this seriously enough that it is not a risk to public health or to the health of, of the players for them to start playing baseball again. And the only way to do that is to make sure that people are healthy. Right. And right now I don't think – and it's different in Chicago because it's been a month. Um, I think we have seen some positive some positive signs here. Yeah. But – it's just it's not consistent nationally. I think New York's the biggest the biggest hotspot. Chicago, right. maybe second at this point. But a, a state like Missouri, and even within Missouri, the communities there, like there's just different response levels. I know Florida is another state that just recently closed their beaches and put a stay at home order in place, and that was where you saw a bunch of people kind of congregating over spring break. And so I I don't know. I think for me, I live with two other 25 year olds who. I don't think any of us are terribly concerned, but like for, for somebody like you and for a lot of other people out there, you're looking out for your families. Like, I don't know, like with Easter coming up, like are, are you guys still planning to do like an Easter holiday next weekend? Um, not, you know, not, a, not what we normally do. I mean, normally for us, it'd be a huge deal and, and lots going on and everything, but, but, you know, for, we're trying to kind of keep things pretty quiet. So we'll probably, you know, do the church thing and then and then have a big meal so at your home. Your churches are still open. No, no, no. Okay. No, no, no. Yes, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, I was I would say have, that would be that would uh, have been. Uh, yeah, that's one of my soapboxes that I've I've been on. I can't seem to get off. Is that? Um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think I know any churches that are still meeting, at least in this part of the country. There might be a few that are like tiny. Um, but even, even there's a couple of really small churches and pastors that I kind of work with and they've stopped meeting even too. So now I don't know of any churches that are still meeting other than that guy in in Louisiana who just wants to be, you know, on, uh, on TV basically, um, yeah. rested, but, but no, we're not going to be, but we're going to transition to an online thing. And, and so yeah. we'll do family, you know, having a ham and ham and food and, you know, probably watch some rerun of a baseball game. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, my family usually does a pretty big thing around Easter too. And I was on the phone with uh, the person usually in charge of that uh, the other day, and it sounds like ours is at least getting pushed until May. Our churches have been closed for a while. I live right next to a church, and sometimes it's a little strange, uh, but it's been totally. Our neighbor has been pretty dead for the last month or so uh, yeah. so I was looking back to baseball ish um, stories I was looking at uh, back at one of your articles I think you published this maybe a day or two ago <laughs> and obviously we're scraping for baseball content you had uh, this was again related to the stay-at-home order for Missouri you highlighted kind of ways for residents in Missouri to in this sort of state, be, as you would say, a good neighbor. And then Paul Goldschmidt's right. amazing week. I'll start with Paul Goldschmidt. Um, yeah. I don't know if you saw on Twitter, the I think it was the Cardinals account. He was playing um, wiffle ball, I guess, in the backyard with two very young children, uh, I guess his sons probably. Um, I assume his wife was behind the camera. He had... A, maybe four-year-old son trying to throw him batting practice, wiffle ball batting practice in the backyard. 
First pitch was a little wayward. It went about 20 feet in the air and about 10 feet past the plate. Uh, Goldsmith swung and missed, which unfortunately is not too uncommon of occurrence anymore. Uh, right, yeah. Second pitch, though, <laughs> he took about five steps back and one-handed a Adam Wainwright-worthy Uncle Charlie down the third base line. Questionably ruled fair. Looked like it was foul. Um, I don't know if you saw that video. It was one of in when we're like dying for baseball and we're like trying. We're getting a little more insight. Freddie Freeman's a guy that I see on Twitter all the time, where he's like out with his sons, with his family, and they're like in this beautiful yard having a good time. It was funny to see Goldschmidt and kind of how deadpanned he is all yeah. the time in front of the St. Louis cameras to be doing that in the backyard with his kids. And honestly, the the, the attitude wasn't totally different. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it, it was one of those things like. It was, it, was, it was totally what you expect from him. He wasn't, like, too high or too low. It was, like, the first pitch went way over his head, and there was, like, no reaction. Um, and then he came back and had to kind of smack the one. Um, but I think that's been one thing that's been, if there's a silver lining to to baseball not being played when we're used to baseball coverage, is that we're starting to see more of the personal life and of the kind of good things that people in baseball are doing to help support their communities. So for Paul Goldschmidt, maybe right. it's, he gets a bunch of extra time with his family. That's a situation, and we can talk about this. Maybe we can circle back to what we opened with. Is is Paul Goldschmidt going to leave his family for the next five months to go play baseball in Arizona? Right. Right. And that's that's a huge question. Like for Goldschmidt, actually, it might not matter. I'm not sure where his family lives. I'm wondering if they still live in Arizona. But Wainwright, for example, we know his family doesn't live in Arizona. He's a yeah. family man. Um, I I don't know. That that's hard for me to imagine that they would. It's one to do it 81 games out of the year where you're on the road with all the travel schedule. It's another thing to commit to four and a half straight months of it. Plus, they just had a training. A lot of the guys didn't bring their families down to, to you know, Jupiter with them. So, you yeah. know, and in the midst of a you know, where, where it's hard to get groceries and you don't know what's going on and, and relatives might be – I mean, you know, it's just uh, – it's really, really hard to imagine. Yeah, and I think, like, like you said for spring training, so I didn't really realize this, but obviously those guys are down there for a month. I didn't realize that usually their families are waiting back wherever they're from, whether for the Cardinals, there's probably a lot of family in St. Louis um, at this point in, in a lot of those guys' careers. But I didn't realize that, like, they're, like, and it makes sense that, you know, they're training all day. I guess they don't really have time for their wife or their kids or whatever it is. Uh, but when baseball first kind of announced that they were canceling, there was at least a concern that the players were going to be stuck there and not be able to travel home to see their families. That was really the first insight I got. And the first time I ever thought about it, It, like these are things that people, at least from my perspective, have never even considered that when Paul Goldschmidt goes down to spring training, he's leaving his wife for a month and a half. And I think we've seen it with, there was, again, I, I go back to Freddie Freeman. There was a video of, um, he was mic'd up during one of the last spring training games saying that like the next week he was going to go get to go, he was going to get to go home and spend 
a few days before opening day with his, with his son, and his son lit up. You know, they had a home camera up. They had a, they had a mic'd up. Uh, his son lit up. And I think that's something that when we're talking about this MLB proposal and we're saying that, you know, they're going to go, they're going to play a game for four and a half months, however many games it is. They're going to go play what, what everybody on the outside considers a game. The fact is there's real people behind the scenes for all of this, and they're going to have to give up four and a half months and maybe you want to call it two to three because of the travel schedules. So say they give up two to three months of being with their families intermittently throughout the season. Um, like that's a big thing to give up. And for there's definitely some players where they don't have kids. Maybe it's not as big of a deal. But for players like Goldsmith, for Freeman, uh, I think for Fowler, Dexter Fowler especially, we talked about him a little yeah. bit last week. Like right. those are moments that these guys aren't going to get back, and I think there's a there, there's definitely a worry that when these guys go down, are you going to get buy-in from everybody? Like what happens? Take the Cardinals. What happens if I won't say Dexter Fowler because we'll probably have people there that would happily take him not showing up to a few games. But what happens if Paul Goldschmidt says no? This this for these two weeks, my family's my family's more important than whether the than than the team. I, what happens? Right. I, yeah, and, and I think too, and I hate to bring this into it, but but I, at some point the players' association is going to have to come to go, Paul Goldschmidt and say, "Okay, Paul, you know, uh, you can spend five or six or eight extra weeks with your family uh, here in the midst of a crisis, or you can make ten million dollars." Because if you talk about you know cutting the um, season down and then potentially prorating salaries, um, that becomes a huge chunk of change. And I mean, I hate to say it, but a lot of this uh, issue right now is about money. Yeah. And so one thing I haven't totally followed, and I think you've, you've been better at this than I have. Um, assuming a season happens. So let's say, let's just take an easy example and say the season starts on July 1st and they manage to play 81 games. One thing that I haven't totally followed, I think from a, a service time perspective, and then from a salary perspective, like what are the, I guess, what do you, what do you see as the incentives for the players compared to like a, just a shortened season with 80 games? What do you see as the incentives for the players to get down to Arizona in May and maybe get through 130, 140 games instead of 81? Right. Yeah. So we talked about Jeff Hassan in his article today or well, a week or so ago he kind of broke the news about the negotiations between the Major League Baseball and the Players Association about what they would do in the case of a shortened season or even a canceled season. And seems like, and I never actually was able to confirm whether this agreement actually passed. I, I, I tried to track it down, but I didn't, I didn't see much. But, yeah. but it was basically an agreement between the players and the uh, – MLB, that the players would agree to prorated salaries um, if uh, – um, wait, hang, hang on a second. The players, what did they agree to? I'm sorry. I think it was uh, – oh, oh, yeah, full – they granted them full service time. The players got full service time for the season regardless of the number of games played. And then they agreed not to MLB – when, I'll just say the word when, when MLB prorates or cuts salaries by the percentage of either lost income or lost games, whatever they end up deciding to 
Yeah. So, so for the players, then the incentive to getting and you kind of mentioned this with Goldschmidt, the incentive to getting down to Arizona and playing an extra forty games is that for somebody who's scheduled to make twenty million a full season, in a half season they're going to get a full year of service time, but only going to get paid ten million. Potentially, five percent of a season by shuttling down to Arizona, that might be an extra five million for that guy, just like as a high level. I guess that like, at what point, right? So in that in that scenario, what point is the? It, I guess you have guys who are making MLB minimum. I know it's like five hundred fifty thousand, but that is. And important, like at, yeah. at the stage after kind of toiling through the minor leagues for several years, like five hundred fifty thousand is not like life changing money at that point. It like definitely, or it is life changing, but it's not like you can't go one year without making anything. So, I guess maybe from the perspective of of that, where if you're fighting for every extra dollar you can, maybe there's some guys willing to trade off the family time. I don't know. I think that would be. It, I don't like that we're putting players in that situation. I guess is no. Maybe. I, I I think that's part of the the kind of pushback that you're hearing from some fans. It seems to be pretty mixed on this. Is that, is that we don't want to make a national crisis about money and right. and about the game, um, but yet um, MLB is a business, a billion dollar business. And these are all billionaires kind of arguing and going back and forth with millionaires about everyone wanting to make as much as they possibly can. So, yeah. yeah. And I think, so I've asked a little bit I, on Twitter, like with this proposal, so taking like the baseball city kind of, I thought that it seemed like when it came out, and maybe this is only the people talking, but it seems like everybody's like full on, like, yes, let's get it going. Don't really care how it happens. Like totally love it. We're into it. And then, like, I fall on the other side of the fence where I think it's kind of dumb. I think it misses the point of what's going on um, socially and nationally. Um, like, I, I think it kind of misses misses the mark on, on that. Um, there was a larger group of people that just, at this point, didn't really care. Um, obviously, knowing that, probably knowing that there's going to be iterations of this thing that come out. Um, I guess, from my perspective... I think my biggest issues with it are, aside from the things we, I think we've hit on most of these, but just the, for one, obviously the family side, I think we can both agree on that. Um, There's going to be issues prying people away from their families. There's going to be questions as to whether that's like a viable solution for adults for that long um, when they're supporting your families. Like people aren't normally asked to go that long without seeing their family outside of like Probably the military would be my the best comparison. Um, I think there's testing issues from like a baseball perspective. The things that I think would be most concerning to me are one, so there would be an electronic strike zone because the home plate umpire can't be within six right. feet of the catcher, yeah. but the catcher can be within six feet of the batter. So right, that's okay. If you get a single, you're going to be within six feet of the first baseman. Right. If you're on, if you're in the dugout, you have to be. You're not in the dugout anymore. You're in the stands. You're six feet apart. So there's a little bit from just like that perspective of discrepancies and like 
what these players are even like how are they going to be positioned like is there going to be cons- like we're not we're taking away mound visits right right and i don't know about you but i've never seen a mound visit where the catcher's not walking out with his glove covering this is better than a, the glove is better than a face mask <laughs> probably so yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah, hey did you never did Six. you see it in South Korea? They're playing with face masks. They are. Did you see I, that? I, yeah, that was. I yeah. watched it. It was another. This was like something I find myself doing at like one a.m. Is there was a Korean baseball game that was being played where the players were had face masks on, and that's an op- yeah. Maybe that's an option. Yeah. I don't. But for for me, just taking the kind of the proposal that they said, you're gonna ban. <laughs> you're gonna ban mound visits, but what's the difference between? A mound visit, and after a single, the guy taking a lead off a of first. Uh, and C seventy said in Korea they did the face mask for a game, so apparently we both saw that. One yeah, game. I'm not, uh, yeah, I but wondered they, about that. They were having trouble breathing, so <laughs> I don't know right. how real that is. Um, right. Well, and I, have, I saw someone today uh, on Cardinals Twitter, and they were talking about that. So, okay, so so the first baseman can't stand within six feet of the. Uh, of the run at first base, except then they're all going to go back to the hotel, and who knows what they're doing there. You know, so, and that's another concern is how do you, <laughs> yeah, how do you control? So they're like part of this proposal is that they're literally going to have, they're going to be at the stadium or they're going to be in their hotel. How are they getting right. groceries? How are they getting yeah. food? And like, how are you monitoring what the what these guys are doing on a day to day basis? Like I. So many details. So some perspective, if you get everybody in an environment where nobody has the disease, it's not just going to pop up out of nowhere. But right, it's a bubble. really hard for me to believe that you're going to take as many people as are required to be in Arizona for this, which is going to be, if you have 25-man rosters, it's 750. If you have 40-man rosters, it's 1,200. So somewhere between 750, 800 people, and 1,200 players are going to be in a like in Phoenix, Arizona, or thereabouts, and you're going to have to control for what all of them are doing? How? Yeah, you can't. And so I think that's, I think that, like, from a logistics perspective, is probably the biggest hurdle. Um, the electronic strike zone, uh, so this is another, this is all contingent upon, I think, or at least like from a gameplay perspective, contingent upon being able to have the um, the home plate umpire call a game while he's standing more than six feet behind the catcher. I don't even know if you would have a home plate umpire behind there if he's not calling balls and strikes. I don't really know what the point would be. Um, well, I was thinking about that. I think, I think that you would do it for plays at home or other plays that involve rulings as opposed to just yeah. the strike zone. Because they would use stat cast basically for the strike zone. And then he would probably have to relay the, the result of the radar <laughs> and everything. You yeah. know, somehow. So is he so, looking at the, so I guess let's picture this is the home plate umpire. Does he have his MLB game day up on, on his iPad? <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah. instead of watching the pitch, cause he can't watch the pitch anymore. It doesn't matter what he thinks about the pitch. Is he just watching on like a five second delay? after the ball hits the glove, where the ball tracks in the MLB, like MLB at bad app, like, is that what we're doing here? Right. And that might work at Chase Field where they're already set up for that, but at the, 
at the universities. And I know, I mean, like we had sat past, uh, for the first Cardinals game. And, and that was really neat because, you know, Tyler O'Neill had that huge home run with that massive loss. So we got to see that. But the rest of the time, you know, there hasn't been stat at the spring training stadium. So I don't know how they're going to get that yeah. set up. I think, I think it's, yeah, obviously there's a limited number that it's set up. But, like, if you just take, I, I think probably the best argument for an electronic strike zone is that all the broadcast networks kind of do this yeah. on their own already. So yeah, that, that's true. Watch, like Fox Sports Midwest, they have a K zone that at least seems relatively accurate. But when you get down to like, I, I guess one, we have to accept that we're going to have technology error um, instead of human error. But there's definitely been cases where, you know, there will be a pitch that's obviously in the zone that either the radar reads wrong and has a different location or it might have it in the right location and just read the wrong output. It doesn't happen often, but if that happens yeah. one out of every 200 pitches and it happens once a game. Right. But do we have, what do you do we have a report on that? Like, do we know, and I haven't looked into this deeply, maybe you have a little bit, is the StatCast uh, stuff, is it more reliable at this point than, than human error with umpires, you know? Because you have that, we, we see that, obviously, the StatCast tells us that happens, you know, a couple times a game as it is from human error with live umpires. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, from what I've seen, umpires are usually, like, they'll miss, like, a handful of calls a game. So if we say right. it's, like, five for each team, you're talking, like, ten pitches out of, you know, north of... Uh, yeah. Definitely north of 200, probably closer yeah. to 250 for, like, a normal game, maybe even higher. So, like... It seems like, at least if you trust the tech and you like compare the umpire to the tech, I would say it's pro- it's well over 90%. Yeah. Um, but, they, I mean, obviously there's human error on borderline calls, but if you take a, if you take the, the stat cast, they're going to be projecting where the ball is flying on where like one or two inches makes a, a difference between a strike and an out. And so even if the even if like a human umpire would get that wrong, who's to say that the technology isn't reading that one or two inches off? Like it, it's not that precise, you know. Like it, it's close, right. like one to two inches when you're considering the velocity that these things are coming in at, and like the just kind of the array of space that they can come into, and you have to read that in real time. One to two inches is really good, but like one to two inches matters for probably a third at least of pitches yeah that are, that are kind of on the edge right because that's where the success i mean we know from barrel rates and other things that's where the success rate for pitch lies is on is in that two or three inch you know in and out on the black that's that's where they live the, the, the pitchers that can can live there are the ones that have the most success and the ones that that can't uh are they either struggle with control or struggle with getting lit up right and there's definitely like we we know with human umpires that there's guys that have different zones yeah i think we you would see the same thing probably with stadiums like different stadiums would have different zones so instead of complaining about is it uh hernandez that i always that just is he the one that like is always it seems like wrong (laughs) <laughs> he's always wrong in big calls that go against me. I'll say that. Yeah. I think it's Hernandez. 
Angel Hernandez, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so instead of, like, complaining about him, I'm just going to complain about whatever. We're going to be at the Chicago Cubs Grapefruit League home stadium. There's going to be a call that goes that get, it goes against the Cardinals, and it's going to be, like, this is just, like, they like they rigged the setup in their own stadium. Like, it's the same. it's the same thing. It's different. We're not used to complaining about technology making bad calls, but that's totally going to happen. Right, um, and I'd be really curious to see how that would affect certain types of pitchers. Like you think about Yachty and his ability to to work catchers and to sort of manipulate the strike zone as the, as the game goes on. I don't know if he still really has the ability to do that, but he used to, right? He used to. <laughs> think about Maddox. He's, and gotten wor- he's gotten worse at the low ones as his knees have gotten older. Yeah, he has, right. So... You know, but some pitchers rely on that. They rely upon the ability to to slowly manipulate a strike zone over the course of a game to where you're getting yeah. a few pitches outside or a few more pitches inside, depending on, on the pitching style, uh, than you would have earlier. And you can't do that to the computers. Yeah, so from the league's perspective, so I guessed, Rain, I just guessed like a third of pitches. There were, according to StatCasting, and we can debate the merits of this number, um, 42% of pitches last year were on the edge. So basically on the black of either either side of the plate or the top or the bottom of the hitter's strike zone. That's another thing. Like you'd have to adjust the strike zone for every hitter. I don't know if yeah, that's that true. would already do yeah. that. If we're talking yeah. about specific pitchers that this would hurt, um, this is probably not going to be a terribly surprising number one. Uh, Kyle Hendricks. Yeah, had the most percentage of pitches for guys that threw at least a thousand total. So like, ten starts worth, or maybe like, I don't know, fifty relief appearances. Um, Kyle Hendricks was number one, and it forty-seven percent of his pitches. So now, that one to two inches matters yeah. on every other pitch that Kyle Hendricks throws. Yeah, and he's exactly the kind of pitcher that you would think would be impacted by this one way or the other. Yeah, and if I look at the total opposite end of the spectrum. I don't know if this is totally surprising either. either. Gio Gonzalez is, has the second lowest. And I feel like whenever we watch, I, f- I felt the same way about Jaime Garcia. Uh, Gio Gonzalez, like, he lives on movement. It doesn't really matter where the ball's going. I don't think he yeah. knows where the ball's going a lot. Um, yeah, that was definitely Jaime, yeah. He lives on the fact that, like, wherever he throws it, you're not going to hit. So maybe, I don't know, maybe if this is what we're going to, Gio Gonzalez, maybe he plays up a little bit because now – or maybe he's less affected, but yeah. So Kyle Hendricks is number one. Jordan Zimmerman was number two. I don't know if he's, um, is he still pitching? That's kind of surprising to me. Obviously he is, but I haven't heard him since he heard about him since like he left the nationals. Yeah. Right. Um, see what is it Detroit now? I guess if he's on Detroit, it doesn't really matter because they're going to lose 100 games anyways. Right. Yeah, he's on Detroit. Seven, I like to say. Almost 7 ERA last year. That is yeah. wild. Um, Trevor Williams, he's, a, I think, on the Pirates, a Twitter favorite to some extent. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, that's surprising that Noah Syndergaard throws that many pitches on the edge of the zone. Obviously, we're not. We wouldn't see that next year with the Tommy John surgery. Um, yeah, but that's with his overpowering stuff. The fact that he lives on the edge, like if he's when he's healthy, he's dominant. And then yeah, 
we're back to Zach Davies, Masahiro Tanaka, kind of Marco Gonzalez, Dallas Keuchel. Those are guys that like. This is really gonna. This would really matter for. Um, have we thought about how a shortened season adds in a heightened importance for variance? So this is something that Fangraphs tackled. Uh, high variance teams have better chance. Meaning high variance teams have better chance to make the playoffs. What does it mean for specific players? Maybe things like that. Um, I'll let you take this first while I look up the Dan Zimborski article because this has been addressed. Um, I think the findings are probably consistent with what we're going to guess, but what are your thoughts on how, with a shortened season, how does that favor teams where maybe I, I, maybe we want to think of it in terms of like uh, depth or just streaky players, however you want to look at it? Well, yeah, my, that was my first thought is streakiness. If you think about just the Cardinals in 2019, they got up to such a hot start in April. Um, and, uh, you know, by, well, probably, was it probably the 1st of May, mid-May or whatever, they started that downward slide, and they were just terrible for the next month and a half and kind of leveled off around the all-star breaking and sort of worked their way up after that. But, but all of those sort of variables within a baseball season are just going to get amplified. And streakiness and injuries are going to come by. If you lose a closer or a elite starter, uh, you're not necessarily going to have time to recover or to make corrections um, and have the the impact yeah. like what it was. I think that's we know like that streaks get buried generally over the course of the entire baseball season. Uh, yeah, but for the Cardinals, like there was a a team that ended up winning 91 games and was like solid for probably June on, let's say. Yeah. Pretty yeah. consistent and solid and good. Had a month where they looked like world beaters and then a month where they looked terrible. Right. Um, so, yeah, like, yeah, how many games are we looking at running a sprint is much different than a marathon. It's totally true. And I think in baseball, it's it gives you a chance for teams that aren't as good to capitalize on random streaks that just go their way. Right. And wasn't it – I don't know if it was last year, but maybe it was two years ago. Weren't the Dodgers like 10 games under 500 into May and ended up winning 90-some games? If the Dodgers started out next year 10 games under five, or well, this year, I guess, 10 yeah, games I under 500 in the season, they're yeah. done. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you, have, like, if you think about someone like Paul DeYoung last year played – I don't know how many games in the this in season the should have stopped after like April thirtieth. Yeah, like one hundred and fifty nine games in the field that the young played last year, right? I mean, just something crazy. Yeah. And you saw the decline in the stats as time went on. Well, our our I think guys, especially established players, have learned to pace themselves a little bit. And if you're looking instead of one hundred sixty two games, if you're only looking at one hundred, can can the young can Goldschmidt can they go all out? You know, for right because I think we see sometimes that they do. Of course, that might be you know, like in the playoffs, everyone's next level is is still about (laughs) you know is still the competition. So yeah, yeah. So then a follow up to that: Who are the high like those higher variance teams? The teams that would benefit the most from a shortened season? I'll start. I think one is the Padres. I feel like the Padres, at least yeah. because of the, the free agency spend that they did a couple of years ago, have a lot of 
high-end talent and if it all meshes really well right away are in a position where they can win you know out of 80 games at any point they can win 45 or 50 um the white Sox maybe back yeah. to the point where they have a lot of young guys that if they can go all out for yeah it's both talent and youth because age uh, you, no matter how many games are played, even with age, you've just got a higher rate of injury. And, you know, if you lose, for example, the Cardinals, if we lost Paul Goldschmidt in a, in a 81 game season, you know, we would, we would be in trouble. Yeah. That but the, the, the aren't likely to lose, uh, you know, their, you know, their younger players or the White right. Sox. So. And I think, so teams that this would really hurt, um, and actually another team that would help before I get into that would be the Angels. I feel like the Angels are maybe maybe this is just selective memory, but I feel like the Angels are always hanging around until the All-Star break and then reality hits in that Mike Trout's the only player they have and they fall after that. So maybe the Angels can harness some of that and make a run for once and get Mike Trout back to the playoffs. Um, now they have, obviously have some sidekick help now with um, – Anthony Rendon, I think the teams that this hurts the most, and this is going to be, this is kind of the money ball argument, is teams I think this hurts the most is the Oakland A's, the Tampa Bay Rays. I think it hurts the Cardinals less so than some other teams. Um, but the teams that are kind of made to like weather the ups and downs of a season and kind of let the, not to turn players into numbers, but let the math kind of, work itself out over the course of 150, 160 games. Those are the ones that are going to get hurt. Like the A's last year won 90 games or something and started out pretty slow. They did the same thing the year before. That happens this year and they don't, they just don't have time to come back. Um, I think, you know, one of the big arguments that you always see against Moneyball is that the A's haven't won a world series since, you know, they had the early 2000s where they won a ton of games, but they never won a World Series. They had a couple years recently where they were down, but the last three or four years they've been in contention for the wild card. They've been battling with the Astros at the top of the division. Um, I don't know that they've ever, in recent years, at least made a serious run at the division title, but they're still winning. In a lot of cases, 90 to 95 games. But those are the teams that really hurt. Like, you don't you don't hear about the, like, the A's don't have a dominant force that's going to come in and win a short amount of games. I think that's um, yeah. I wonder, I wonder about the Cardinals. You mentioned the Cardinals. That it seems like this particular Cardinals team has, you know, more variance in their in their projections and their their likely outcomes than than previous versions of it. But you know, the Cardinals have built teams that are are capable of just sort of plodding along at hundred and winning that extra game every now and then. You know, and and, and ending the season eighty six to ninety one games. Well. Without those highs, with those peaks and valleys, you know, if you're talking about 81 to 100 games, if we're sitting there at, at you know, two or three or four games over 500, that's not uh, an ideal spot so, to be are in. Are we calling for the uh, the return of Randall Critchick? <laughs> this streaky take his month of 150 OPS plus and right. that the season runs out before he forgets what a, what a right. starter is? If by Randall Grish you mean Dylan Carlson, yes, I'm in. Yes, so. let's go. 
Uh, well, I think you have, I think you would have to take chances. I, I don't think you could give Dexter Fowler, for example. He might be fine this year. I, he really might. I like Dexter. But, no, I think uh, Fowler's back. You can give him, like can him. Give him a month and a half. I talked a little bit about this last week. I think at this point in his contract, he's sort of at the point where you expected where he really yeah. shouldn't be starting. Yeah. I think if they go through and, like, force – I don't want to say force. I'm sure he wants to start. But if they, like – go out of their way to make sure he's starting as opposed to letting talent or production determine that. I think that for a lot of people, they're going to be doing themselves a disservice in how we view what they're doing and kind of the free agent market and how they like look at their own players. Cause the Cardinals have been a team where for a long time, I think they have, there is a case that they have managed pretty well the kind of like expectations of a contract versus like what's actually happening on the field. I think they really Matt Holiday when he starts slowing down, they really backed off. Um, they don't really they don't have a big history of manipulating service time. They don't have a big history of manipulating salaries um, or like arbitration things like that. Uh, I think that would be it. I think. Looking at a short season, if they're playing Fowler, even if it's 20 games over a guy like Carlson, Lane Thomas even, you're doing a disservice to your chances to win in yeah. a shortened season. Yeah, I agree. And I think also, you know, this uh, – I hope this doesn't sound callous, but in my, in my opinion, Dylan Carlson's development trumps everything. And if you're if you're only having eighty to hundred games played, and and who knows? We haven't even talked about minor leagues. We have no idea what's going to yeah. happen. That, we'll leave that for for Kyle on on Pat if he can. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do it exactly. Before before it goes up. Before yeah. So if you're going to give life. yeah, if you're going to give uh, Dexter his chance, and then and then Carlson literally can't play because there's no games for minors, or because they're doing this thing in Arizona. I don't see how the team can can just say, "Well, Dylan, you're the best prospect we've had since Tavares or Pujols, so why don't you sit for two and a half months while our fourth outfielder veteran has yeah. his shot?" That doesn't make any sense at all from a development standpoint. No, I, I think from a development standpoint, you have that. I think from like a roster management standpoint, maybe like there is an argument to kind of assess what you have as a team before you push it. Um, but I again, I think like you have to go into the season willing to win, and the what it seems like at least the best chance that's going to give you that is playing uh, playing Carlson over Fowler. You're probably going to be I don't know, sorry, Bader, O'Neill, Lane Thomas, whatever it is. But Carlson's one of he's certainly one of your best four outfielders. He's def I would say almost hundred percent one of your best three. At that point, you got to figure out how to get him on the roster, regardless of who's getting paid what. Um, yeah. So Dakota Hudson, we're back to so the off season has extended, so we're still on Nolan Arenado trade takes. Dakota Hudson, well, I think this will be the last thing. This will be what we leave it off with. We'll 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 end it with a classic. Uh, Nolan Arenado for Dakota Hudson, uh, Nolan Gorman, and uh, I'm gonna botch the name Lib- Liberator, Matt Liberator. Do you trade those three? Do you trade Gorman, Libertor for Arenado? No. This is, this is throwing it back to like January. So. Yeah. 
And the reason you don't is because rosters are locked, so you can't. It's it's real simple. So. Sorry. I said I wouldn't do it right because uh, very simply, rosters are locked right now, so no trades or transactions. <laughs> That's fair. I would yeah. say. I, I said this before, I'll say it now. I don't think Arenado, maybe, I'm probably wrong. I'm probably overrating the core's effect. Maybe I'm underrating how good he is defensively. I don't think he's that much. He's a couple win upgrade over what we have now, but taking, obviously, like the way Kim played and pitched in spring training, I think the way Ponce pitched in spring training, um, I don't, I think Wainwright's a big question mark, but all those guys doing well makes Dakota Hudson a little more. Yeah, I agree with that. But yeah. And I like Hudson, but I think... My I think biggest, uh, yeah. on will be the show, if I don't care where the money's coming from, I probably do it. Knowing that the Cardinals cap themselves at 165 or 170 million, I don't think... I think that just takes away too much from their ability to do other things. Yeah, um, I don't think I'll, that's necessarily right. I don't think yeah. that there. I think there's a lot of good reasons for them to swallow, to say, you know, while we have Arenado instead of 170, we can spend 190. But knowing the way that front office has operated for the last X years, it's just not something that's going to happen. Uh, and so, no. in a vacuum, if I if the Cardinals can spend 190 instead of 170, do I do that trade? After knowing what I saw in spring training, yes, I think I absolutely do it. If you would ask me two months ago, the answer is no, because I think Dakota Hudson was a lot more important to the rotation in January than he is in, in April. Um, but yeah, I, I think knowing the way the front office would manage the budget after getting Arenado, um, I just don't think it makes a ton of sense. I think it handicaps them for the entire time yeah. that they have the contract, uh, just kind of knowing where they cap themselves. Um, well, I'm so speaking of spring, watching. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, speaking of spring, watching, and I'm going to mess it up too, Liberator or, or however you say it. That kid looks incredible. Um, he's got the. Be, he's got the. I've been. I've been really to big give that up. That he does. He, he looks. Got a lot of hype before he came over. There's some Kershaw, some Kershaw buried in there somewhere, hidden deep. We, we can hope that he becomes even if he's even a shadow of Kershaw. Half of Kershaw would be even be worth it. So <laughs> he could probably be a run worse per season from Kershaw, and he would still be in the top yeah. five of the Cy Young like five times. Just that curveball it just looks a little bit like a whatever yeah. Kershaw like when he was about the same point. Not that he's going to be that at all. The, the, the classic but, twelve to six coming from the yeah. lefty side. He mixes it with a pretty good fastball. Right, exactly. uh, but yeah, I. I he looks good. I hope that he's a guy that, you know, if you miss this year, that's a, we talked about this a little bit. We won't go into it again now, but that's a big year development for a guy. It is. Uh, coming to a new organization at 21 or so years old, probably even younger. He might even be 20. Um, that's huge. So hopefully um, if we all are socially distant from each other, we can figure this thing out. Baseball can be played. 21 is old. I hope 21 is not old because I – I'm a lot older than 21 now, um, so I don't like to consider myself old. Um, but I think with that, so we'll leave it there. Uh, Jason, thanks again for joining me. You can find Jason 
um, at Vivalbertos. You can find him on Twitter. Uh, I'm trying to pull up his account. I think it's JP Hill. Is that your yeah? JP Hill underscore cards on Twitter. That's um, it. Again, find his content at Vivalbertos. One of my favorite writers um, on that site right now. Um, and really, over the last couple of years that I read the site. Uh, he has some great content, especially around keeping you guys up to date on what's going on in MLB right now. Um, and I know he'll have great content if we ever get to a real season. Uh, so with that, I'm Zach Gifford uh, with Birds on the Black. Thanks again for listening to the, I think, fifth episode of Nerds on the Black. And again, appreciate you guys dealing with the technical difficulties that we had to kick this off. Um, thanks, guys. Stay healthy.